0: Chapter Fifteen of A Hazard of New Fortunes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arnus Beaton's studio looked at first glance like many other painters' studios: a grey wall quadrangularly vaulted to a large north light, casts of feet, hands, faces hung to nails about, prints, sketches in oil and watercolour stuck here and there lower down a rickety table with painted palettes and bottles of varnish and sickative tossed comfortlessly on it an easel with a strip of some faded medieval silk trailing from it a lay figure simpering in incomplete nakedness with its head on one side and a stocking on one leg and a japanese dress dropped before it dusty rugs and skins kicking over the varnished floor canvases faced to the mop-board an open trunk overflowing with costumes. These features one might notice anywhere. But, besides, there was a bookcase with an unusual number of books in it, and there was an open colonial writing-desk, claw-footed, brass-handled, and scutcheoned, with foreign periodicals, French and English, littering its leaf, and some pages of manuscript scattered among them. Above all, there was a sculptor's revolving stand, supporting a bust which Beaton was modelling, with an eye fixed as simultaneously as possible on the clay and on the head of the old man who sat on the platform beside it. Few men have been able to get through the world with several gifts to advantage in all, and most men seem handicapped for the race if they have more than one but they are apparently immensely interested, as well as distracted, by them. When Beaton was writing he would have agreed, up to a certain point, with any one who said literature was his proper expression. But then, when he was painting, up to a certain point, he would have maintained against the world that he was a colourist, and supremely a colourist. At the certain point in either art he was apt to break away in a frenzy of disgust, and wreak himself upon some other. In these moods he sometimes designed elevations of buildings, very striking, very original, very chic, very everything but habitable. It was in this way that he had tried his hand on sculpture, which he at first approached rather slightingly as a mere decorative accessory of architecture. But it had grown in his respect till he maintained that the accessory business ought to be all the other way that temples should be raised to enshrine statues not statues made to ornament temples that was putting the cart before the horse with a vengeance this was when he had carried a plastic study so far that the sculptors who saw it said that beaton might have been an architect but would certainly never be a sculptor at the same time he did some hurried nervous things that had a popular charm and that sold in plaster reproductions to the profit of another beaton justly despised the popular charm in these as well as in the paintings he sold from time to time he said it was flat burglary to have taken money for them and he would have been living almost wholly upon the bounty of the old tombstone cutter in syracuse if it had not been for the syndicate letters which he supplied to fulkerson for ten dollars a week they were very well done but he hated doing them after the first two or three and had to be punched up for them by fulkerson who did not cease to prize them and who never failed to punch him up beaton being what he was fulkerson was his creditor as well as patron and Fulkerson, being what he was, had an enthusiastic patience with the elusive, facile, adaptable, unpractical nature of Beaton. He was very proud of his art letters, as he called them, but then Fulkerson was proud of everything he secured for his syndicate. The fact that he had secured it gave it value. He felt as if he had written it himself. One art trod upon another's heels with Beaton the day before he had rushed upon canvas the conception of a picture which he said to himself was glorious and to others at the table d'hote of the moroni was not bad he had worked at it in a fury till the light failed him and he execrated the dying day but he lit his lamp and transferred the process of his thinking from the canvas to the opening of the syndicate letter which he knew fulkerson would be coming for in the morning He remained talking so long after dinner in the same strain as he had painted and written in that he could not finish his letter that night. The next morning, while he was making his tea for breakfast, the postman brought him a letter from his father, enclosing a little cheque, and begging him with tender, almost deferential urgence, to come as lightly upon him as possible, for just now his expenses were very heavy. It brought tears of shame into Beaton's eyes the fine, smouldering, floating eyes that many ladies admired under the thick bang. And he said to himself that if he were half a man he would go home and go to work cutting gravestones in his father's shop. But he would wait at least to finish his picture, and, as a sop to his conscience, to stay its immediate ravening, he resolved to finish that syndicate letter first, and borrow enough money from Fulkerson to be able to send his father's cheque back, or, if not that, then to return the sum of it partly in Fulkerson's cheque. While he still teemed with both of these good intentions, the old man from whom he was modelling his head of Judas came, and Beaton saw that he must get through with him before he finished either the picture or the letter. He would have to pay him for the time anyway. He utilized the remorse with which he was tingling to give his Judas an expression which he found novel in the treatment of that character. A look of such touching, appealing self-abhorrence that Beaton's artistic joy in it amounted to rapture. Between the breathless moments when he worked in dead silence for an effect that was trying to escape him, he sang and whistled fragments of comic opera. In one of the hushes there came a blow on the outside of the door that made Beaton jump and swear with a modified profanity that merged itself in apostrophic prayer. He knew it must be Fulkerson, and after roaring, come in, he said to the model, that'll do this morning, Lindau. Fulkerson squared his feet in front of the bust, and compared it by fleeting glances with the old man as he got stiffly up and suffered Beaton to help him on with his thin, shabby overcoat. "'Can you come to-morrow, Lindau?' "'No, not to-morrow, Mr. Peaton. I have to sit for the young ladies.' "'Oh,' said Beaton, "'Wetmore's class? Is Miss Leighton doing you?' "'I don't know their names,' Lindau began, when Fulkerson said. "'Hope you haven't forgotten mine, Mr. Lindau. I met you with Mr. March at Moroney's one night.' Fulkerson offered him a universally shakeable hand. "'Oh, yes, I'm glad to see you again, Mr. Fulkerson. And Mr. Madge, he don't seem to come any more?' "'Up to his eyes and work. Been moving on from Boston and getting settled, and starting in on our enterprise. "'Beaton here hasn't got a very flattering likeness of you, eh?' "'Well, good morning,' he said, for Lindau appeared not to have heard him, and was escaping with a bow through the door.' Beaton lit a cigarette which he pinched nervously between his lips before he spoke. You've come for that letter, I suppose, Fulkerson? It isn't done. Fulkerson turned from staring at the bus to which he had mounted. What you fretting about that letter for? I don't want your letter. Beaton stopped biting his cigarette and looked at him. Don't want my letter? Oh, very good, he bristled up he took his cigarette from his lips and blew the smoke through his nostrils and then looked at fulkerson no i don't want your letter i want you beaton disdained to ask an explanation but he internally lowered his crest while he continued to look at fulkerson without changing his defiant countenance this suited fulkerson well enough and he went on with relish i'm going out of the syndicate business old man and i'm on a new thing he put his leg over the back of a chair and rested his foot on its seat and with one hand in his pocket he laid the scheme of every other week before beaton with the help of the other the artist went about the room meanwhile with an effect of indifference which by no means offended fulkerson he took some water into his mouth from a tumbler which he blew in a fine mist over the head of Judas, before swathing it in a dirty cotton cloth. He washed his brushes and set his palette. He put up on his easel the picture he had blocked on the day before, and stared at it with a gloomy face. Then he gathered the sheets of his unfinished letter together, and slid them into a drawer of his writing-desk. By the time he had finished and turned again to Fulkerson, Fulkerson was saying— I did think we could have the first number out by New Year's, but it will take longer than that, a month longer. But I'm not sorry, for the holidays kill everything, and by February, or the middle of February, people will get their breath again and begin to look round and ask what's new. Then we'll reply, in the language of Shakespeare and Milton, every other week, and don't you forget it.' He took down his leg and asked, "'Got a pipe of backing anywhere?' beaton nodded at a clay stem sticking out of a japanese vase of bronze on his mantle there's yours he said and fulkerson said thanks and filled the pipe and sat down and began to smoke tranquilly beaton saw that he would have to speak now and what do you want with me you oh yes fulkerson humorously dramatized a return to himself from a pensive absence want you for the art department Beaton shook his head. "'I'm not your man, Fulkerson,' he said compassionately. "'You want a more practical hand, one that's in touch with what's going. I'm getting further and further away from this century and its claptrap. I don't believe in your enterprise, I don't respect it, and I won't have anything to do with it. It would choke me, that kind of thing.' "'That's all right,' said Fulkerson. He esteemed a man who was not going to let himself go cheap. Or, if it isn't, we can make it. You and March will pull together first rate. I don't know how much ideal you put into the thing, the more the better. I can look after the other end of the schooner myself. "'You don't understand me,' said Beaton. "'I'm not trying to get a rise out of you. I'm in earnest. What you want is some man who can have patience with mediocrity, putting on the style of genius, and with genius turning mediocrity on his hands.' I haven't any luck with men. I don't get on with them. I'm not popular. Beaton recognized the fact with the satisfaction which it somehow always brings to human pride. So much the better, Fulkerson was ready for him at this point. I don't want you to work the old established racket, the reputations. When I want them, I'll go to them with a pocketful of rocks. Knock-down argument. But my idea is to deal with the volunteer material.' look at the way periodicals are carried on now names 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 in a country that's just boiling over with literary and artistic ability of every kind the new fellows have no chance the editors all engage their material i don't believe there are fifty volunteer contributions printed in a year in all the new york magazines it's all wrong it's suicidal Every other week is going back to the good old anonymous system, the only fair system. It's worked well in literature, and it will work well in art. It won't work well in art, said Beaton. There you have a totally different set of conditions. What you'll get by inviting volunteer illustrations will be a lot of amateur trash. And how are you going to submit your literature for illustration? It can't be done. At any rate, I won't undertake to do it. We'll get up a school of illustrations, said Fulkerson, with cynical security. You can read the things and explain them, and your pupils can make their sketches under your eye. They wouldn't be much further out than most illustrations are, if they never knew what they were illustrating. You might select from what comes in and make up a sort of pictorial variations to the literature without any particular reference to it. Well, I understand you to accept? No, you don't. That is, to consent to help us with your advice and criticism. That's all I want. It won't commit you to anything, and you can be as anonymous as anybody.' At the door, Fulkerson added, "'By the way, the new man—the fellow that's taken my old syndicate business—will want you to keep on, but I guess he's going to try to beat you down on the price of the letters. He's going in for retrenchment. I brought along a cheque for this one. I'm to pay for that.' He offered Beaton an envelope i can't take it fulkerson the letter's paid for already fulkerson stepped forward and laid the envelope on the table among the tubes of paint it isn't the letter merely i thought you wouldn't object to a little advance on your every other week work till you kind of got started beaton remained inflexible it can't be done fulkerson don't i tell you i can't sell myself out to a thing i don't believe in can't you understand that oh yes i can understand that first-rate i don't want to buy you i want to borrow you it's all right see come round when you can i'd like to introduce you to old march that's going to be our address he put a card on the table beside the envelope and beaton allowed him to go without making him take the cheque back he had remembered his father's plea that unnerved him and he promised himself again to return his father's poor little cheque and to work on that picture, and give it to Fulkerson for the cheque he had left, and for his back debts. He resolved to go to work on the picture at once. He had set his palette for it, but first he looked at Fulkerson's cheque. It was for only fifty dollars, and the canny Scotch blood in Beaton rebelled. He could not let this picture go for any such money. He felt a little like a man whose generosity has been trifled with. The conflict of emotions broke him up, and he could not work. End of chapter 15